This is The Cooldown with me, Phil Rockner, and the always interesting Steph Hansen. With thanks to Triathlete Magazine, let's have a conversation. Welcome to The Cooldown, another edition. I think we're up to episode four, I'm going to say. I'm Phil Rockner. Joining me, as per usual, is the one and only Steph Hansen. Steph, Happy New Year and welcome to you. 2022. Who would have thought we'd actually get here? <laughs> and in true 2020s style, I started off getting COVID on New Year's Eve. So screw you, 2022. It's been a great start. Uh, I don't picture you as the uh, the late night New Year's Eve party goer anyway. So what what a great time to just ch- chill out. Like that's all you're doing, right? The Feet one up. time. The one time I go, you know what? I'm going to go out New Year's Eve. I haven't gone out for New Year's Eve in about a decade, right? And I'm just like... I generally sort of maybe jump my neighbor's fence and have a couple of beers with him and then just call it, you know, but I go to a party and, uh, yeah, it was a super spreader. So that's good. Um, good times. Everyone got COVID. Um, the, yeah, so it's been a fun time. So we went on last week because of my COVID, COVID, COVIDicity. Um, I think that's the medical term they're using these days. I hope wherever you're listening to us that you are well, that you got through New Year's okay, and that Omicron has not laid its dirty paws on you just yet. Um, But certainly we are walking our way through 2022 cautiously, Steph, um, already. I know, cautiously. I mean, I spent New well up to New Year's Eve in in Tassie, uh, not telling any Tasmanian that I was from Melbourne because I felt like there was a massive tug on my back. So I, that's how cautious I was. <laughs> I was yeah. yeah, Tasmanian through and through. But yes, we are we are leading into twenty twenty two, slightly on eggshells. Um, but I'm also got the uh, the old blinkers on and a bit of tunnel vision and just ignoring the shit show that is the rest of the world right now. Yeah, and we <laughs> we do know that around the world people are not enjoying themselves. Hopefully, this will bring you a little bit of uh, light or something to do if you are in recovery or if you are trying to avoid it, get out there and train. It's pretty hard at the moment. We've got a beautiful day here in Victoria where we're broadcasting from, uh, Steph, and we're quite lucky thinking about other people. I keep seeing social medias of people in the snow and stuff like that. And I, coming from a non-snowbound country, I it makes zero understanding for me about snow. I don't understand it. I don't know how you could live in it for a whole winter though. <laughs> Brett saw snow for the first time, um, my husband Brett, uh, only I think four years ago when we, when we went to New York and I think he's still trying to warm up from from that event. <laughs> but how good is I, – I love watching particularly the pro athletes – out there training, exercising in the snow, uh, particularly cross-country, because that cross-country skiing, sorry, is one of the toughest sports. And, and I believe cross-country skiers have the lowest VO2 max. So they're the, the fittest athletes um, out there. So I don't know. Like, I feel like the the crossover effect for, for triathletes, it seems to be a good thing. Yeah, if you can chook foot, you're, you're awesome. Um, and I... <laughs> It's like when, like the Winter Olympics are coming up, of which I know zero, I know less than zero. So (laughs) I'll be an expert in the first five minutes. Um, But when you watch the biathlon, which is what they used to call duathlon back in the day, um, before they got the biathletes, the winter biathletes got their nose out of joint. And because they were armed, it probably worked out better for them. But you know, when they (laughs) ski and shoot, I mean... Seriously, I mean, that's the the engines that those men and women have when they when they do that is phenomenal. You know, whereas 
I mean, I suppose all the Olympic sports now people love, you know, whereas when it first showed up, everyone just thought it was just a, you know, some of like a hyped up X Games once the snowboarders showed up, et cetera. But some super talent coming online in uh, in the Winter Olympics again, be good, and but weird. It's just all weird for me, like shoveling your driveway, salting the earth or whatever they do, you know. And then I was listening to an NHL podcast the other day and the dude was talking about his driveway being heated he's a heated driveway so he doesn't have to shovel snow wow my gosh i was watching um because i'm obsessed with new york um just this instagram reel of people taking snow off the top of their cars and there's one dude out in the middle of the street with a sword (laughs) it's so good it's but that's so normal over there just i want to just because we've already gone down a sidebar of winter olympics at what point do you start skiing, snowboarding, what have you, and go, yeah, I'm going to do like a quadruple twisty axle thingo <laughs> and feel confident that I'm not going to die? Like, yeah. you know, same with pole vault. You know, like at yeah. what point do you go, yeah, this big bendy stick is going to fling me over and I will land? Like, my gosh. It doesn't make a lot of sense. No, none of it does. The, especially, you know, the aerial skiers, of which we can boast Australia has a, a, a very good mm. history. And cry, uh, how would, yeah, how do you, how does Australia produce these sorts of I, athletes? Yep. So it's crazy. Right. Yeah. Yep. I Actually, I just saw um, Laura Peel um, just became the third w- woman in history to now the quadruple twisting triple in freestyle aerial skiing. So that's, you know, they do the twisty, loopity, doopy, spin no, around thing. I don't thing. know what that means. No, no idea what that means. It sounds <laughs> awesome. It's like, yeah. you know, you know. Um, and I, I must say the, I, I'm, I'm not, I can't sit there. It's like watching equestrian and ice dancing are the same sort of category to me. Like I can't watch horses <laughs> just doing prancy stuff and I can't, I find <laughs> the ice dancing hard. I get awkward. I feel awkward when I'm, I feel like I'm at a bad 80s nightclub. I feel awkward. <laughs> Uh, what, what, that bad eighties nightclub. There are no bad eighties. There's eighties nightclubs and they're all brilliant. I mean, a night at the Roxbury, yeah. you would have, you'd be from that era, right? Well, I was thinking more about the St. Columbus disco circa, 87, <laughs> you know. Lost me. <laughs> Not bad at it. Uh, uh, I tell you, anyway. we've got a, the show today, the pod today will be fun. We're talking to Chris McCormack and, um, you know, Anytime you get a bit of time with Macker, it's always interesting. The guy, someone told me that there's no one in the world working harder to be corporately successful than that guy. And I think I think we can all agree Super League nailed it this year, I think, with the, mm. the um, people he got involved, uh, athletes-wise, um, the teams, the month of racing, the repeatability of it, the sort of come back next week and see what happens. I, I think they nailed it this, this year, or last year, I should say. Yeah, I agree. Um, it's such a awesome format to watch. And like we've spoken about many a times on and off this podcast is um, viewing it, watching it, the spectators. It is such a spectator-friendly event. It's exciting. It's fast. It's um, the, the length of the actual races are, are quite short in comparison to, say, your iron distance racing. Um, and I, I just love my favorite bit is watching them dive back into the water whenever yeah. that happens. It just could, yeah, you, you, you over, you overstep that you go in with a little bit too much acceleration and uh, 
it's fun. It's fun to watch. It's it's almost carnage. It's great. <laughs> we all love a bit of carnage. I think yeah. I'm keen to ask him too about these sub seven. I'm keen to talk about this whole mm. drafting thing and where that fits. Um, I I look at sub seven and I go, yeah, great concept, but I'm interested to know how the paces work. Um, mm. So I, I think that's something we can we can definitely uh, take a look at and 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 ask him. But hey, let's stop chatting about the man. Let's get across and have a conversation with Chris McCormack and see what comes up. <laughs> just get started probably the obvious thing man who's had a massive year last year uh and who is probably going to again rewrite some uh crazy racing stories this year is the one and only chris mccormack chris welcome to the cooldown. appreciate your time oh too easy i wouldn't say it was a massive year if you're talking about weight gain yeah then it was a massive <laughs> year but, <laughs> but i reckon i'd have you on that one chris i don't know I, i'm prepared to throw down with anybody it was a, it was a strange year for the world but no, we, we got some stuff done, which was wonderful. Are you um are you fit at the moment? Are you like are you like in all of this? Do you find time to train, or are you getting stuff done? I'm doing one thing a day with my my wife Emma. We decided we'd do one thing a day, but I was really fit going into COVID because I, I registered for, to do the marathon de sables. So I thought, oh, you know what, I want to do a put a goal out there. When I retired from triathlon, I thought that's it, <laughs> not doing anything, and then that. That burning desire to do something came back again. So we entered the Marathon de Sables and I was doing a lot of running and I was actually loving it. I got really fit and then the whole world got shut down and uh, I sort of got all not depressed but sat in the house going, what can we do and watching the news and, yeah, sort of with the Polynesian blood in me, I put weight on by looking at food. So I just went, <laughs> it was all gone. So, yeah, I wouldn't call myself, yeah, triathlon fit but um, on the bell curve, I guess I'm, yeah, healthy. <laughs> was it nice um when you walk away from the sport, like being as successful as you were, like, is that, is it hard? Like, is it hard to, to finally call time on, on a career or do you just go, you know what, I'm done. This is done. I didn't find it hard at all. I was ready to retire earlier than I did. Uh, I think I found it really difficult on the family as they aged, as we got old and no, I didn't retire till I was just about 40, you know, 40 years of age. So it was a long career, 20 years. So I wanted to retire in 2009 um, I thought I'd win Kona in 2008 and nine, but that never happened. Crowley got in the way. <laughs> so, um, and, uh, you know, you, you sort of have these plans of how your career or how your life's going to go, and it didn't go that way. And I didn't really hang them up until 2013. So I was four years late, but I was definitely ready to retire. And, and uh, it wasn't that I wasn't enjoying the sport. It was just more, it, it didn't, I wanted to do other things. And, and you, you're in that difficult period in, in an athlete's life where you realize the end is coming. And you need to make the transition between, you know, this glorious life of a, as an athlete, this sort of bubble we live in, and um, into the real world. And, and I thought the best way to do that was to stay racing and try and transition while I was racing and use that leverage that I had as an athlete to, to help that transition. So, you know, I saw myself retiring after Kona 2010, had that Olympic registered to try and make the Olympics, which was just sort of buying me some time. I did want to make the Olympics, don't get me wrong. Mm. Uh, but it sort of bought me that time to to look at other things and transition. So no, it was it was an easy decision on my end, that's for sure. You've you've got to be one of the most successful professional triathletes um post racing career. Do you have you noticed a lot of professionals really struggling to transition into that next career? I think, yeah, not just professional triathletes. I think it's a very difficult mm. thing to do, transition from from sport into the real world. I, I say this for anyone. Imagine coming, being confronted 
you know, in your industry and in anyone's industry, confronting with the reality that not only do you have to retire, but you can never do it at the level that you need to to make a living ever again. So if you are, it just stops and you have to reinvent yourself. And that's a very daunting thing. We're all aware of it. And I think some mm. people try not to look at it and face it, think it's not going to happen <laughs> and, and, and ignoring, thinking by ignoring it, it just won't present itself. But uh, my father was always on my back even when I was a professional athlete, he always thought I lived a blessed life. He called me the golden child. He, he's like, man, you don't, you haven't done a day's hard work in your life. I used to <laughs> laugh at him about that. So I always sort of had this, this feeling that I needed to, to transition and do something post, post career. And I was always very, very aware of that. You know, even after winning Kona in 2007, we were talking about, okay, what's, what's next? What do we do next? And, and I didn't want to really be that cliche coach. If that, mm. you know, I, I started that Macarex or, a community at the time, it's now MX Endurance, which was more about a community and, and, and building a community and having them pay as opposed to to being that cliche, retiring as a professional athlete and coaching amateur athletes in the sport I did. I just, I, I don't think I'm a great coach and I, and I it just wasn't sort of something I wanted to do. And, and I, um, yeah, I found the transition interesting and, and relatively easy because I just threw the same amount of effort at it that I did in sport. And, you know, I, I was semi-disappointed with a lot of my peers in that transition because I saw them as such amazing athletes, amazing individuals, that if they did apply that same sort of work ethic and, and I guess, risk-style approach to to what they were doing in their afterlife, that they could have been as successful at whatever they did. They just, I think a lot of the times you, you move into that retirement age and you become very, very defensive of what you have and you sort of ring fence it all and instead of taking risks, which is which has got you to where you were. You you start to to consolidate and 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 ring fence everything and support everything and try and lead a life that protects what you've created in the last twenty years. As opposed, I was more about okay, what can we do next? Let's have a crack. And people would laugh and what an idiot. That's a stupid idea. But I've never been defined by what people always thought I was an idiot. <laughs> so I didn't really care what people thought. And uh, yeah, and, and as I've always thought, time. You know, when the tide goes out, you see who's swimming without their pants on. So I just kept saying, just keep pushing, and um, the tide will go out, and people will see the the, the effort of your of your labour, and, and that's sort of where we are. It's you know, I've been retired now for nine years. It's been a long time. I want to get, I want to get a t shirt with that on it. The tide, yeah, and he's got their pants on. Um, yeah, <laughs> it's um, but you're also, but when you race too, you also had um, the stickers on your on your racing jersey were always you know, the bigger stuff, the bigger brands and things like that. And it's, is it hard to think outside of the square in terms of getting dollars into this sport because it's so niche? Um, and obviously running a, a race series, it's got to get funded. It's got to get um, people yeah. involved. And you've got to think, again, do you, are you constantly thinking about revenue streams for um, the Super League series? Um, or is it something that because it's just growing, um, it's it's getting those sorts of offers? And how important, he says with his 15th question in one, um, how important <laughs> is it to, you know, to look outside the box for, for, for athletes at the moment for alternative revenue? Yeah, look, triathlon, all, all boutique sports, and I call triathlon a boutique sport, it's, it's a difficult sport. It's a very big sport, to, you know, commercially. There's a lot of money floating around, but but there's a big a lot of big players that take a big portion of that cake. So I, um, it, it, it was relatively difficult, but I, I just sort of looked at things and, and you know, I see myself, I hate saying the word entrepreneur because everybody thinks they're an entrepreneur, but I, I sort of looked at the sport from my perspective. I thought, look, no one's had a better view of this than I have, or 
a lot of people have, but I've been on the inside of this game for 20 years. I've watched it evolve. I've seen Iron Man explode. I, I've watched Formula One series and series come and go in Australia. I've watched the World Cup go from drafting to non-drafting or non-drafting to drafting. I've watched all these things happen. What were the best periods of racing that I saw and what are athletes looking for? And, you know, when we when we came up with the Super League idea, I always thought the Formula One series in Australia was magnificent. I sat with the Bray boys in Singapore, Damien, before we launched Super League and, and walked through what went wrong with him. He said I was mad to even go down this path, that the ITU would shut it down. And, and I was like, look, nothing ventured, nothing gained. I actually asked, hey, Damo, you want to come and join us? He just said, no, I don't. <laughs> I was like... That's an endorsement. <laughs> yeah, I lost all my hair doing that. That's exactly the words he said. He said, I used to have long locks and now I'm bald, so I'm not, <laughs> I don't want to do that anymore. Um, but, yeah, I, you know... I, you know, every everything's difficult in life, like, and you know, and I, yeah, raising the money. There's a lot of people in our sport that do it, and I think you just have to. Be, I think what I've learned is if you really believe in something, there's a lot of people out there that are prepared to back it because they believe in the sport and they believe in the lifestyle that this sport brings. And while fiscally there's better investments to make, that's like anything. But I, um, yeah, I found that the network I created by being the athlete I was, I was, yeah, I was a successful athlete, you know, through results, but I was also you know, the last guy to leave the party. I was very aware of my network and, 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 and I was, I did have a lot of downtime and I spent a lot of that downtime during my career, making sure I created good networks, good friendships with, with very, very powerful people. And, uh, and, and that really paid dividends when I, when I left the sport, I was able to lean on those individuals to help me transition. And, uh, with Super League, it was, yeah, it was, I didn't really do anything. I, I really took an idea. I re revamped it changed the concepts, changed the ideas, looked at multi-day racing and took it to the world, which I thought would be awesome. But, you know, I realised what the Formula One series here in Australia did very successfully was had a had a captive market here in Australia, which is very, very easily to run because in one country you can get a single single corporation that, that can, can benefit from that, what you're pushing out in a single country, where when you go into multiple different markets across... It's, it's a much bigger play. And, and I didn't really think that one through. I thought, oh, the world is more money. It would be better. But it was a lot, a lot harder and a lot slower and a lot more teething problems and a lot more politics. But I think I've always risen to the fact of being – I like being on the back foot. I like being attacked. Mm. It's always been something that I enjoy. I don't – when things are quiet and think, I think, oh, we must be doing something wrong. But I like people telling me I can't do it. I like obstacles being presented. I like the ITU telling me to get lost and, no, you can't do that. I like it. I love conflict in that lens because it just – means I'm doing something right. And so I think, you know, we moved through that whole Super League process in the early days with a lot of conflict and a lot of people pushing back on us, arguments with the ITU, with the Ironman. But, yeah, I, I enjoyed that. And so we got through the other side. We had a, a very strong investor who loved the product, who still does, who's become, you know, he's our main business partner and uh, he believes in what we're doing. And through his network and companies, we've been able to bring on people to the sport that never even anticipated looking at triathlon in the past and realizing it's a very, very interesting space to be in. And especially post-pandemic. I think post-pandemic people are really going to appreciate, you know, community activity together again and, and triathlon and running and these events will really benefit from that. Can I just want to ask, and I laugh because it's obvious that you like, you like it when people tell you you can't do something or yeah. they dare to do something or they tell you that you're stupid. It's ammunition for you. And I, I feel like I'm very much like that as well with a lot of things. Is that something that's always been a part of your personality? Because it's obvious it's been like that on the race racetrack as well. 
Uh, without question. I think it's because yeah. I'm the middle brother. I have an older brother and a younger oh, brother. I'm the middle child too. <laughs> I'm a middle child. Right? Yeah, it is. It's, I, I'm convinced of it. And you're always competing, trying to keep up with the older brother, in my case, and, and trying to make sure the younger brother didn't beat me in anything. So I always felt like I was, yeah, I was in the... I was in the middle on things or in the in between conflicts and whether you know and coming from three boys it was always conflict but I hmm. yeah and I think I've always when I first came to triathlon I always felt like an outsider you know I, I came through Canola which was a, a huge triathlon community but I was a runner from from the from the from actually Stanmore Park which is a bit further south than Cronulla and um and so I, I never felt like I fitted in here when I came here because I didn't have the blonde hair, blue eyed. I was dark skinned, dark eyed, you know, like a runner. Couldn't really swim. And, and all these guys around here were beachy surf club guys that had been doing triathlon and they felt like they owned it to some degree. And and so I always semi felt like an outsider. And I think I sort of broke in by going down the pub and drinking and being fun and, and realized that, you know, the best way to approach things is when people say you can't do it just prove them wrong. I used to do it to my younger and older brother. So, I, and I found that it, it's definitely a, a character trait that, that drives me and I, and I, and I enjoy it. I don't, I, I'm not, I'm not intimidated by conflict by any way. I'm, you know, some people avoid confrontation. I'm, I'm, I'm I love it. You're always, the boxer, <laughs> no, you're always no the boxer trapped in the triathlete's body though, when you were racing. Um, <laughs> yeah. you I wish I could fight like I could fight, I wish I could fight like <laughs> triathlon, but I can't. Like the, I mean, it, it still sticks out that, um, that video you made with Triathlete Magazine, I think it was, um, the beautiful people who look after this podcast, um, it was shot in Auburn, I reckon. Oh, yes. And you yeah, outlined basically Auburn. how you're going to win Kona. It was in, I think you shot it in June. You might have shot it in June. and you February, just... February. Okay. Yeah, it was with Bob Babbitt and Under Armour in Auburn, Alabama for, for football season was about to start college. Yeah. College football we're down there doing some uniform testing. Yeah. And you said, basically, this is how I'm going to win Kona. And in like seven months later that you went out and did it yeah i i found that that era was you know like everyone got caught up and now in 10 years down the track people can look at it differently you know like you know craig and i craig was an amazing athlete an amazing competitor and a fellow australian but i i had in 2008 when i lost to craig well i I'm more 2009 2008 i didn't finish because of mechanical but 2009 when i lost to craig i promised my wife i'd retire that year because i thought i was going to win kona and i'm going to sit on a Sit in Honolulu on the beach, sip a sip a mai tai, and and we'd be done with the sport. And it didn't happen that way. And I remember having a conversation with her, and she's like, "Are you going to be able to live with this? You, know, <laughs> you coming fourth, and Craig's got two titles, you got one, and and uh, you know." You, you, and I said, oh, "Look, if it was a guy that was ten years younger than me, then yeah, I could deal with it. It's Crowley. Like I've he's actually a month older than I am. Like uh, it's not a, it's, I'm not being." pushed out by the next generation i'm being pushed out i have my career worth swim and i was actually on land better than everyone on the field but no one looks at the results everyone wants to everyone's just a hero worshiper right and so and that was sort of what i was looking at i felt like everybody at that time within the sport of triathlon was more about you know they watch they watch results not races actually in the races i was competing well i just got beaten on the day and, and, and that happened so i i honestly believed i was capable of winning and that's why in february i was like look this is how you have to win it people are losing their mind if they don't see this like just look at how that race has been won the last two years sit in the group deliver a big run mark allen approach nine out of ten times it's going to win your kona and we can't outrun this guy he's the best runner in the heat why would you want to get off the bike with him guys let's work we're all better than everyone thought i was just an arrogant but there was two peers talking to each other and back then without social media you, you communicated through 
you know, me and Craig had a bit of a, a rundown after that race in 2010. We sat down at a coffee shop here in Cronulla and sorted out our differences after, you know, when we both agreed that we should have communicated with each other directly. But we, back then you went through Triathlete Magazine and, and you do an interview and knowing that you were talking to the interviewer, but you were really talking to your peers. Mm-hmm. You wanted them to read that interview because, and that's how I saw it, and he would do the same. So we sort of created this banter. And we should have just sat down and said, hey, did you really say that? Did you really say that? And we realized that, yeah, we got to this position through not through lack of communication. But uh, I, I, you know, I, as I said to Craig and I said to everyone, he was a, an amazing, amazing athlete, the, the one of the best I ever raced. But, you know, I, I wanted to win Kona too. It was real in my life. Whilst everyone else was a spectator, by me putting my hand up saying I want to win it, people, ah, oh, he's an idiot. And uh, I'm like, dude, it, it means something to me. And I'm saying that right now. Everyone's, it's a foregone conclusion. Christian Blumenfeld is going to win Kona if you read anywhere. I'm like, mate, there's a lot of guys that come. Mark Allen said this to me once. He said, look, Chris, 20 years will pass. You're going to hear about all these guys could potentially win Kona. And every year there'll be only one. And then you're going to look back through that list. And you go, oh, geez, he never won either. And he never won. And he never won. And he never won. And you realize there's only a few of us that will win it because there can be only one. And so until you've done it, you just and, – and, and also ran, if that's – you know, and, and I'm, I'm having this argument with the Christian Blumenthal, and I'm the Christian's biggest fan, without question. And I talk with his agent and his coaches, and I'm like, look, don't get ahead of yourself, guys. Jan Fredino may be 40. He's won this thing three times. He knows how to do it, and he's no Muppet. Yeah. Like, until you've done it, you're just a person that may do it, right? When you've done it, then let's talk on, on, the, on the way you're talking. But up until now, you're just a – it is one of many that could potentially do that. Yeah, it seems too. The um, there's some dudes in the world who have really figured that race out. You know, and you've mentioned yes. Fredino. You look at Langer and those guys. They've they've got it figured. Um, yeah, Blumenfeld's not just going to walk in and and take it. I, I, I'm like you. I don't. I mean, again, look. I was the guy who said that Gwen Jorgensen would never win a gold medal, but um, <laughs> but I don't see him just wandering in either because it's kind of different. It's a different place. Um, just back on Super League. It's obviously that last year, I reckon you, I spoke to you about this, I reckon three years ago, we were on a phone call, maybe four when you first started, and you were trying to explain the concept to me um, and my thick-headedness, I was listening, um, and I think what you explained to me a few years ago was lived last year, that month of racing. Was yes. that the perfect storm for you um, in in the way Super League was um, rolled out? Because for mine, it was it, it, it seemed like this is it, it's all aligned. Yeah, look, look, we were ready come 2000 and, and post-2019. We had the three series. We had seven races locked for 2020, and COVID decimated us. So we lost. We had Singapore. We had Saudi Arabia. We had Shanghai. Um, we had, well, we're talking in Sydney, which we were engaged in. We had a, a really strong series, and then no one anticipated COVID. And, um, you know, we were able to deliver. During COVID, we were working a lot with Zwift and we did some bike races, which I didn't like. And then we pivoted with that arena games, which I love that concept. And we're talking about the old indoor racing. We're trying to work out how to do something in this esports, this mix between esports and real sports, which was arena games. And then we, we started getting these understanding COVID a little better, going through the COVID protocols. We're living on Zoom calls and and, and we we took the chance, took the punt to, to deliver a series over a month put the athletes in a bubble, a COVID bubble, and, and travel during that month, which was demanding on the entire team, like from an operational perspective. We bought the Malibu Triathlon at the end of 2019 from from the, um, from the Sam Sam and the guys. I've forgotten the name of the company. 
And um, so we always knew Malibu was on. It's a big event. I love that race. And so so we had to cancel the year before on a, a, the mass participation element just as an online element. But once we got that month and we agreed to do it and we got the systems in place and we all came into the bubble and the athletes bought into it, yeah, it was great. Like we loved it. And, and we, we built a lot of confidence with the athletes during – Sure, the PTO did that with the long course athletes by providing money for the long course athletes with their pro. But for the ITU athletes, it was nothing, you know. And so for 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 Super League, any of the athletes that were in our series, we presented those arena games. We had a lot of races online with prize money, and we're trying to distribute money to the athletes to keep them racing. So because of that, we brought a, brought a lot of confidence from them, and they were able to support what we're doing. And that month was awesome. You know, I grabbed COVID though, unfortunately, in in Jersey, so I missed the Malibu event. But uh, it was, um, yeah, it was a really good month. And the feedback from everyone was great. And we brought out the team concept, which was talked about in the athlete. In 2019, we talked about bringing out teams at that point. We had three teams locked down, Bahrain and BMC and a whole bunch of teams were coming. And then we opted to bring out that format anyway and go with it. And yeah, for, you know, looking back at it, this, you know, we're always very critical of, of how things went. But overall, to get that month done, under very, very difficult and trying circumstances with COVID and the protocols that happen with COVID, if a single athlete gets it, you've got to separate. And it was, it was tough. And, and I think my entire team out of London, the entire Super League team slept for a month after it. It was, uh, it was a heavy, heavy, heavy month. But we were stoked with, the, with where we got. And now, now we're seeing hopefully in 2022, um, we've got a lot more on the, on the horizon with, with, all the old venues from 2020 coming back online. So we'll have a solid series in, in 2022 and, and we've got the funding to take us all the way through to, you know, post Paris. So it's exciting. Well, I remember when uh, you originally launched Super League and it was the, uh, correct me if I'm wrong, but the test event on Hamilton Island. Yeah. Is that right? Yes. Yeah. yeah. Uh, and I remember having a really good chat with you uh, because a lot of people were up in arms that it was just the men racing and um, the response from yourself and the team were, we've, we've got to test this out and prove. It's, good, it's a proof of concept, uh, but we have every intention on making sure there is a quality across the board. And I just want to congratulate you on that. There just, it seems to me that that is something that the, the entire team works really hard on making sure that there is that equality amongst the men and the women. Oh, without question, but triathlon's always been the world leader in that. It's, it's frustrating when you hear surfing and these sports jumping up and down going, we're finally equal after, <laughs> well, hang on a sec. Triathlon's been equal since the beginning. In those early days. Well, when, in prize money. Yeah, in prize money. Yeah, yeah. And, and to be honest with you, a lot of the, I can tell you from a lot of the teams I run, the women in my teams are making more than the men. So it, it, it's, it's it's without question an equal sport. We don't look in any way. I don't look at an athlete for gender at all. I look at talent and what they what they do. And I think that that initial phase with Super League, when we came, what we were presented with, and I, I was you know six five years ago, so I was a lot younger and a lot a lot newer in this game, and I was trying to prove myself a lot more, but. What I think my first takeaway was when we reached out to the people for support, even Triathlon Australia, ITU, I think they looked at us like we're a bunch of idiots, mm-hmm. to be honest with you. They're like, ah, whatever. And if you remember, Malulabar was on that weekend um, and we, we had to find a venue. We, we'd already contracted all the women athletes, but unfortunately Gwen and, and Nicola were both pregnant at the time. And Super League, our first concept of Super League was, was 
trying to make it the Champions League. So we, we, we always envisaged that they would race the ITU series to some degree, and that would almost be a qualifying series. And at the end of the, uh, we would take the top 25 athletes into championship series, which would be called Super League. And it'd be the mm. Super League. And it's the best of the best racing. No federation, regardless if there's, you know, there's no limits on if there's 10 from the UK and they're the top 10, then there's 10 from the UK. I wanted just the best of the best to come head to head because I was finding in the Ironman racing with mm. so many races, those head to head battles were few and far between. Like there was people cherry picking their way around the world and I was meeting Ironman champions I'd never even heard of, which was, I just didn't <laughs> want it to happen in the ITU space. So, you know, I, we, we delivered the event in Hamilton Island and then oh, we were so proud and then boom, the shit fight came. Bang. Yeah, you know, like mm. we reached out, where's the women's race? Amanda Lullum wrote a big article in the paper. I'm like, well, no one called me. And the girl from Queensland that used to race for her husband's a photographer, she's ripping into me. And I'm like, what? Like, and Marisol's going, you didn't do drug testing. I'm like, I did everything right. And then ultimately when they unpacked everything, they're like, oh, this guy did everything right. I'm like, yeah, because, <laughs> I'm like, absolutely I did. But you guys, no one wanted to know anything. Because no one took us serious. And now that we sit at the table, like we have meetings with Iron Man, IT, where we're at the table, they realise, geez, these are pretty forward-thinking people from the sense that we don't come at, we don't come, we are coming at it as administrators now, but we've come from the inside out. A lot of these people have come and they've never even done an event. They go, they're sitting there sipping their champagne and clapping a few people and then go to the, uh, you know, there's some other dignitary thing. They're not, they're not really on the inside. And so I really wanted to, and I've really pushed that with the athletes that, Super League is, and we do, we funnel a lot of the profits and the athletes will be aware of this. The athlete within our, the athlete group within our organisation, they tell us where they want the additional money spent. So every year we increase the prize money and whether that's in qualifier events or giving it to the 20th place finisher on contracts, that's a call that the Athletes Commission makes. So I really wanted to make triathlon professional because it's not professional. We call them professional triathletes, but all they are is people that have a licence given to them by the Ironman organisation that they pay for, and because they've got three top three, well, three top ten finishes in any race in the country, that's you know, like it's a, ridiculous. And it's just it's an it's a mass participation sport with a couple of elites that do it, and some of them get big sponsorship, and that's called pro sport. And in the ITU level, it's all semi amateur through the federation. So I really wanted to create a professional league if I could. I didn't know how to do that, but I just knew what we were doing wasn't right. So we, we were tweaking it as we went, and and we were open to criticism. We we're open to help. I think I said that to you, Steph. Yeah. I was like, yeah. Don't 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 attack me. Help me. I don't know the answers, but but I, I find, as I said, I found in my life, if you're getting attacked, you must be doing something wrong, something right. So mm. that was sort of how I justified. I said, just bunker down. Don't worry about it. let them attack you. Just keep stay on the path, and they'll see when the tide goes out. They'll see that we're swimming. Yeah. With, we're swimming with pants on. Everyone else <laughs> isn't right, and, and that's sort of where we are now. The tide's out, and people are like, wow, they survived, and we survived COVID, right, because of I think good business acumen, great, great investors, great people that trust the product, and 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 the community of triathlon and the athletes that say this is pretty cool, this direction's good, and all our networks have jumped on board, and and then we pivoted in our approach, which we always wanted to do with our content creation in in building documentaries, exactly what twenty four seven used to do with boxing, creating stories that create interest around why you would watch it, and you know the Formula One thing on Netflix now is testament to that. Drive to survive. People don't watch Formula One, but they watch that. Now everyone seems to be aware of Formula One. Yeah, and, and I'm I'm in that camp, Macker. I don't watch a second of F1 during the year, but I watch yeah. I've watched all seasons, all episodes of that, and, and so I'll probably 
jump up and say that's they've hit the mark there because I wouldn't have a clue about F1, but I watch that um, and just see that and go, it's really cool. It's a really cool way to package. Um, and yeah, I thought Channel 10 here in Australia did a great way of packaging with the RPM shows and stuff of making stuff appeal to people who are not going to be flat out, you know, fans of the sport. Yeah, without question. Without question. I saw it, the first time I ever saw it was when Oscar De La Hoya fought Floyd Mayweather. It was the first ever 24-7 they did with boxing. And I'm being a boxing fan, and they followed them for the four weeks prior to camp, prior to the fight. It was unbelievably engaging. And even my wife, everybody who didn't even know boxing was watching. And that's when I realized, you know what, you've got to, you need to create an interest and create a reason to watch. Because, yeah, we love triathlon. And triathletes will, I'm always saying this to my team. Stop judging yourself on how many triathletes watch it. Put put the shittest triathlon in the world on television and triathletes will watch it because they're happy for anything. That's not the audience we want to get. We want to get the person who doesn't know about triathlon that's engaged in it to some capacity because they're interested in the individual, they're interested in the event, or they're intrigued by what's happening on the screen. So that's always been our wash, how we're looking at things. And it's difficult because... It is. It is not a. It's. It's triathlon is something you do. It's not something you play, which is always difficult to push. And and the Ironman has that nice, huge challenge about it that, that's inspiring to people. Has an inspirational element, where hardcore pro short course racing is about skill and aggression and and all these things. And it's how you capture that and tell that story and captivate an uninformed market is 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 key. And nowadays with all the plat- channels and platforms you can do, and we're moving away from terrestrial TVs becoming. Whilst it's important to a lot of sponsors, you're realizing it's less and less important in the way people consume media nowadays. So, yeah, it's it's a funny. I'm learning as I go. Again, I don't claim to know everything, but I've, I've I enjoy the process, and I think that's that's been the the gift that Dad and as my dad used to say, the golden child. I think I've been very very lucky in the things I've done in my life. I've actually enjoyed what I do, so I don't find them as work. Sure, you you get bogged down in arguments and 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 pushing in a direction you want to push and pushing your narrative, but. Overall, it's it's a pretty nice life. Well, and I think that's what you're you're getting with a super league, and I, and um and I think it's what we we saw, you know, we saw that the, the repeatability of the distance. I think that's what yeah. kills Ironman, and Ironman, and this is where the PTO is doing their one hundred and two hundred and all that kind of setup as well. Everybody realizes that Ironman's not repeatable. So you know, you'd remember this, Chris, the Ironman World Championship they used to have, or the you know they used to race. Yeah. Um, World Series, yeah, Tinley and all that used to race yeah. it, and Ray Browning, and, and I'm going back a ways now. Um, yeah, yeah. But you th- like those guys would race five or six Ironmans and be cooked. And we saw Lionel Sanders this year, and and Joe Skipper, and those guys. I mean, I don't know how you recover from that. The the repeatability of what you guys have in ITU and the Super League and anything that's short means that literally PGA style, you guys can yeah. go week to week. And I think that's probably that you guys have obviously thought through and, and, and are playing into? Without question. And the other thing we looked at and we talked about a lot was when you everyone talks about the beautiful demographic in triathlon and when you look at the, you know, and the demographic of spectators, there's conflicting reports, right? So most people take the participation demographic and call that the spectator demographic. And when you look at the age bracket of that group, they're all 45 plus is the biggest, you know, say 40 plus is the biggest group of people then when you look at how that group of people have how they've come through their experience of sport through their life which is predominantly i see them as my age terrestrial television you know going about the uncle toby series here in australia being quite passionate about the sports you like and, and watching it on a single platform being a tv but with super league we're trying to 
appeal to a younger audience because I was always of the impression that if, if triathlon is going to be built off the back of Ironman, which is what killed triathlon in this country, in Australia in particular, is that it's only Ironman. It killed off all the short events that bring young people through and bring young first-timers into the sport, um, then, then we're doomed. So without ap- appealing to a younger demographic and a younger audience and how we talk to that audience, we're, we're doomed. And so we were very, very driven on the digital front, very, very driven around our socials, trying to build that. I was trying to understand that. I'm, I'm a dinosaur in this space. So a lot of our team is, is very, very young individuals that were, were really pushing this direction on how to do that. And then we just created those content teams that help build those stories that we can push out digitally, got those nice small pieces of content that we push out through the BBC and stuff like highlights packages and, and, and little little snippets we do on some of our athletes that we share on news over there. It just creates a, a, a dynamic and interest in our brand and within in sport of triathlon. And it talks to the audience we're trying to talk to. And we've shown that our, our predominant audience that watches Super League racing is 25 years of age. 25 to 30, which is a much younger demographic than 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 Ironman, which is really really nice. Which is a quantum shift too in your platform use as well, digitally, isn't it? Like so, you're not yeah. you know like Facebook and things like that. Traditionally, old people get involved in exactly. Um, and then I suppose what Insta and the the snaps and you know here I am dating myself. Steph, stop. <laughs> TikToks, yeah. The TikToks. TikToks a lot on YouTube. <laughs> YouTube is a is a huge. Yeah. medium and, and as you said facebook is is sort of an older medium it, it's very very good for targeting and i man uses facebook a lot we use facebook still because it's easier to share the stream easier to draw people in but it, it has its limitations but youtube is is a very very powerful tool very powerful so picking up for the next thing as well outside of um outside of what you're doing at super league obviously a lot of people talking about sub seven um i have questions um sure. <laughs> So how did it come up? So how's it? So you're sitting around one day, it comes up saying, "What? What? How does it? So how does an idea like this evolve after you watch the marathon, or is it something like that that you've been spying off, or how does it come up? Surely, surely beer's involved. There was, there, there was. It was a, it was a dinner actually, and 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 we're talking. Um, we're in Bahrain, and uh, we just done the seventy point three in Bahrain. Christian had just broken the world record, or world's best, and. Um, and the entire Bahrain team was there with Jan and Daniela, and we're all at the Four Seasons having dinner. And um, and Christian had come and had to fly out, and we're talking about his time. And of course, once you're amongst peers, everyone's like, ah, oh, you know, this was short, or this wasn't quick enough, and this all these all the reasons why the time was so fast, because that's how I guess alpha egos justify for themselves why they don't have the time and someone else does. And um, and we were sitting there throwing. I said, well, mate, if you doubled that time, that's sub seven. Like, do you reckon that's possible? You know, and, and at first of all, I was talking to Daniela about doing under eight hours. I, I always had a, a an idea of, of doing a setting up an Ironman race or an iron distance race with paces exactly like four women to break that magic eight hour mark. Because I, you know, in my probably my own ego thought, well, Mark Allen and Dave Scott couldn't do that. I'd love Daniela Reef to do it because it'll end that whole Mark Allen, Dave Scott discussion forever. It's just like Daniela can do this. So I was talking to Daniela about how we could do it. And and then, as I said, it got onto the Christian story with sub, his time in the half. And I said, well, what are the men going to do? Sub seven? I don't think that's even possible. So we were throwing around these ideas. And then I text Christian. I said, could you break seven hours, you think, for an Ironman? And one word, absolutely. And I was like, oh, so I'm showing Yarn, I'm showing Alistair, I'm showing Javier. I'm like, well, he thinks it's possible. And then Yarn's like, mate, it's not possible. And everyone was breaking it down. And and uh, I said, well, what if I put an event? What if I go away, come back to you guys? Would you be interested in doing it? 
you know, they're like, oh, look, no one's going to break it and blah, blah, blah. And, and Alistair said, yeah, I think Alistair had his little pen out. He said, mate, you swim 44. I could ride, you know, 350. I've got to run. Oh, yeah, it's hard. If you could draft and get paces, and that's how it sort of came about, yeah, I think you can do it. And Yarn's like, it's not possible, mate. You couldn't do it. Couldn't do it. No way. No, no, no. I said, okay. And I went away. And, and at that point, we just started our agency, this this Mana Group. It was Mana Sports. And so I used to have a company and I merged with a European company. And um, and so I thought, look, let me park this under. And I went out and we went through the foundation that we'd started. And we he talked about the concept and they said, let's do it. You know, and I love my team. team. So everybody's like, let's do it. Everyone thinks it's crazy. Let's do it. So we, we put together it and we went back to the athletes. And first person I rang was Christian. I said, okay, if I put a race together here, and he said, 100%. I'll do it, hundred percent. Never done an Ironman, not an Olympic champion, nothing. Right, and I rang Yarn. I originally thought we'd have three men and three women. I rang Yarn, and Yarn's like, "I'll do it, but I'm not racing anyone. I want it like Kipchoge. Like I don't want to take a risk, blow up, and get caught by two guys. So I don't want to come third." And I said, "Well, I can't bet everything on you getting a flat tire or you having a bad day. I set up everything, and you know, <laughs> it's a long day." He's like, "Nah." And then I rang Alistair. Alistair said, "Yeah, I'll do it." And then, then it was sort of going back and forwards and and that's when I rang Daniela and I'd already spoken to Lucy Charles and Daniela was the same as Yarn, didn't want to race anybody. And I'm like, I'm not going to do that. So I signed the team we signed and we went about building out the concept, what we needed to do, working with their teams. And at that time, everyone laughed because they said Christian Blumenfeld's a joke. Like, and <laughs> now they're like, wow, geez, you're ahead. It's, you know, we signed him 18 months ago. So it's like now he's the world record holder, Olympic champion. And, and for us, I've got the, the last three Olympic champions. Like, you know, doing the men's race. And I got Lucy Charles, a 70.3 world champion. Daniela had a pretty average year last year. And, and Nicholas Spirig, who's Switzerland marathon champion, who honestly believes with this type of format, she'll drop a sub 240 marathon and win this thing. She's like, I don't care how much you give Lucy Charles. Unfortunately, I come from this style of racing. I'm going to win. I'll run 240 and she won't. I'm like, oh, this is going to be great. And that's sort of where we're, we've been going back and forwards with it. And it's been interesting hearing the dynamics and how we went through and created the paces and the story around how this would go about. And the feedback again initially was, ah, oh, this is Mickey Mouse, it's a joke, they're drafting, blah, 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 until you start showing people away. We've got 10 paces, each each team has 10 paces. But how you strategically use those paces is key. We originally thought, you know, you'd have Michael Phelps and Chris Froome and everybody in your team. But remember, if you've got Michael Phelps swimming for you, you've used a pacer up in the swim. And your team, the other person you're racing against may still have 10 paces. So it's how you strategically select paces. And in fact, the individual sport disciplined athletes, whilst they may be great paces, it's a sacrifice on how much you can get out of them on the day. So, you know, there's been a monumental shift in the way the athletes have thought about it. And that came across predominantly by the Norwegians because they're bringing Gustav Eden and all the triathletes, Casper Stores, all their guys as paces because they realize they, they want to maintain the maximum amount of paces for as long as they can through the race. And and it made Alistair switch from a lot of the, he had a lot of big name professional cyclists. And he actually thought, you know what, it's true. I may lose, I'll, I'll lose that swim advantage. And, I'll, and, I, and because of the way we have the bike set up where paces can come in and out, you know, we sort of have a pit lane where they can come in and out and you can swap them and rest them. They realize that some of the triathletes can provide a lot of that bike pace and I, and they can be used in other disciplines which is which is handy so it's been very very interesting dynamic in that sense in the strategies and the way that all these athletes each individual athlete within this sub seven sub eight challenge believe they'll break the record but have a different approach in how they'll do it nicola thinks it'll be done on the marathon as does mm -hmm. christian blumenfeld alistair brownley believes it'll be done on the run 
um, as does Lucy Charles and, and the way they're getting there. So it's going to be interesting to see, unlike the marathon project of Ineos, where it was just setting a pace and running next to a green line, where the pace is very, very difficult and sort of a metronomic sort of performance. This is much more a strategic performance and what you'll see during the day will be how those strategies work, how they use their pacing teams to do that and whether they can deliver on these massive times they're saying they need to do, which is just, you know, speaking to the pro cyclists, we've got a lot of that on a lot of the content stuff we've delivered. They're saying anyone who's, any triathlete that says it's easy because it's drafting has never done a team's time trial. Yes, <laughs> like, which are hellish. And so- yeah, 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 they all laugh. They're like, team's time trial or individual? I'll take individual time trial any day of the week. Team's time trials are horrible. Yeah, yeah no one and enjoys so- them. I, I, in saying that, though, the, the pacing has been the sort of the area of contention. People saying, oh, it's not a real triathlon. It's it's getting drafted and round and stuff like that. Yep. Um, have you counted that? Yeah, I, look, I, it's 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 a it's a ITU type triathlon. But you, you, we're talking about a twenty one minute, a twenty nine minute improvement because Ironman didn't recognise the swim. Twenty nine minutes, five percent. Like it's ridiculous. Like it's the improvement, you, you could never do it. What the question we wanted to ask was what is humanly possible if you took all the rules in the three disciplines, okay, understanding that the marathon record is two hours. So we, we talked about it. But if you took those three disciplines, factored in fatigue, what is as close to perfection that a triathlete can be? Because fundamentally, as a triathlete, that was the aim, to be the, the perfect athlete. And we used to always measure ourselves against the fastest times in each individual discipline. Now, those, those athletes in those individual disciplines, they go, oh, he's a triathlete, you know, jack of all trade, master of none. What I was trying to do was close that gap where, okay, what I'm asking these guys to do is swim the same pace that would put them in the, in the Olympic final of the open water swim. I'm asking them to ride the fastest ever stage of the Tour de France. Okay, give me your best cyclist ever. The fastest ever stage of 100 and over 100 miles was when um, Miguel Ingerain was passed by, um, that's the guy that used to run Livestrong team, um, Johan Brunel sprinted him years ago. It was a 106-mile stage, and they averaged 51.7 kilometres per hour or something. That's the fastest stage over 100 miles ever in the tour. So I'm asking these guys and girls to ride that pace and then drop a t- sub-230 marathon. Regardless of whether you think it's not a real triathlon or not, that is a real endurance performance. Yeah, That is a serious, 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 serious ask of an athlete. And I ask anyone, if you think drafting is easy, go and put four athletes five athletes, how many of you want, go to Kona and, and go and punch out a time. Then it should be easy, but it's it's going to be way harder. And and what we're seeing in a lot of the data they're doing now with their scientists is everyone's, everyone's so obsessed with, you know, what's their average power? What's the average power of Jan Fredino in Kona? He did 303 watts. Well, yeah, the average power in, in this, in, in the sub seven event, maybe a little lower, but it's how they deliver that power um, which would be which would be dif- difficult because there's a lot of spikes as they're swapping turns where they sit in the group. So the the science is showing that whilst the power numbers will be small, only only a fraction smaller, the pace will be higher, but potentially the fatigue with the drafting will be much more than the fatigue with a with a uh, as, as an individual because there's so many spikes in your performance over that 180k. That's what burns the glucose. That's what burns through the glycogen. That's what burns and adds acid to the to the muscles for the run. So it's not the fact that, you know, you don't, it's not a lot of people think, oh, you know, there's, I go and do my Sunday bike ride and there's a hundred guys in front of me and I'm sitting at the back and geez, this is easy. I'm sitting on 40K an hour. We're talking about five or six athletes swapping turns over 180K. It's, you know, yes, you're getting a, you're getting a, a draft, but there's a lot of communication happening. There's a lot of working together. There's a lot of understanding where the wind's coming, captains on the road, 
all of that maintaining a pace over 51 kilometres an hour, just go and ride 50k an hour on the weekend with 30 of your friends. It's ridiculous how difficult it is. And and that's been the interesting part for me. And we're trying to tell that in this, a lot of the content stories we're collaborating with the scientists and with the guys in the, in the, in the wind tunnels that are all saying, this is a much more difficult way of attacking an Ironman than the way you're currently doing it. In fact, I think one of the Ironmen should actually go in this direction because it would be interesting to see the dynamic of a draft legal triathlon, draft legal Ironman with limited amount of pros because there'd be attacks on the bike, groups would get away. Then the, to stay away, you're swapping hard turns, which you're putting up high power numbers to stay away, which saps your run, much more blow-ups. Where is that now? Nowadays, with the super sapien sticker on their thing, they're telling them when to have their gel. Everyone's writing their power numbers. They just sit there. It's very, it's very, it, it, it lacks, it lacks the spontaneity of the racing that used to be, and it lacks the blow-ups. You don't get as big of blow-ups as you used to, because there's so much data now that, that athletes are, are semi-metronomic in the way they approach their racing. I'm excited about it. I want to. I want to know um, just like some of the little details around. And excuse my ignorance if um, this has already been put out there. But food, food on the bike is that going to be like a feed bag type of thing where yes. the pace is all? Yeah. Okay. It's going to be. We're going to have each athlete will have a car and fed, which in that car will sit their their coach right. and their team. Certain athletes, we thought every athlete would have a leader on the road. For example, it, with with. Uh, Alistair Brownlee, he's going to have Gustav, who's uh, who's basically the captain of what is happening around Christian's pacing, right? So Christian will sit there, he's protecting, he's all, okay, I need food, and he's going to get all that all that for, for the athlete. So, you know, that's a, it's a great question because feeding at 51K, and I'm sure the car can come up, but you've got to get it to the athlete. You've, yeah. got, to, you've got to take that on, they've got to consume it. So there's a lot of those those dynamics we're just sort of borrowing the rules that are in place for the individual disciplines and because that's sort of how we're measuring ourselves. we want to measure the swim against the fastest swimmers in the world we want to measure the bike against the fastest bikers in the world and then we want to see what the drop-off is in the marathon mm. you know against the fastest marathon and they're not going to run two hours it's not possible but but christian believes a, a mid-220 marathon is capable he's very very capable of that after all that performance which I'm like, really? He's like, mate, the science shows it. And they are so ingrained in their science. When you see what we've filmed with these guys, you can see why they're winning. It is like, it's for me, it's like watching Ivan Drago. You're like, wow, without the drugs. Right? <laughs> it's like, wow. Like, it's, it's amazing. Half the stuff they talk about, I've never even heard of. Like, you're like, oh, gee, far out. It, it's, it's fascinating. And, and you realise the evolution from the dinosaur I was in my days of racing, which is quite spontaneous and just... I guess I was just a, a journeyman, a brawler. These guys are very, very polished and, and there's so much science behind what they're doing. And that was, that's been driven because of how good the Fredinos and Daniela Reefs are and, 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 and what Alistair Brownlee brought to that ITU racing that these young kids have grown up in that era and that expectation of performances on them. It's, 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 it's fascinating, fascinating stuff. Is that what you see that the quantum leap in Ironman performance is kind of due to? Is it, um, you know, nowadays if you can't go sub eight, as a male pro, you're hopeless. Um, yeah. Whereas when you guys were getting around in the era before you, like that 8.10, 8.20 was that God time when you're in Kona and when Crow went 8.03, everyone lost their minds. And then all of a sudden now it's like, if you can't go sub eight, what are you doing on the course? Do you attribute it to science? Science has got a huge part to do it. And and I see it with follow, having followed Alistair now with the sub seven project and having spoken with Yard, the, the, 
you know, the, the actual average power numbers, when you take, say, a Ronnie Shiltnick from the, my era, he was riding 318 watts in Kona. Mind you, he was only riding a 424 to do that. 318 watts nowadays, with all these positions and the slippery suits and that, he's riding a low four, sub 410. So it's not as if these guys are astronomically more powerful than we were in the day. It's just a lot of this technology is enabled to put in positions and materials in their clothing. And as you said, all the super, all the, the, the power meters and, and the weight of those power meters and the, the electronic gearing and being able to get all your cables in and the integration of the handlebars with the bike. And it's amazing what these bikes uh, are doing now and, and what the athletes are capable of doing. But the science is next level. And I know Yarn's racing kits with Ryzen the amount of, it's, it's very Lance Armstrong. Remember Lance used to get the, the uniforms made and out of the wind. That's what Yarn's doing. This is stuff, like we had flappy singlets and, and, and you know, I'm looking across and Cam Brown's still in Speedos, you know, you're yes. like, <laughs> you know, nowadays it's it's a lot more professional looking. And, and as you said, I think there's a lot, a lot of those guys who have come out of that ITU racing uh, are just very, very talented, talented athletes. And, and, and there's a lot more racing now. So, I, I think you can get some performances up that 70.3 um, series of racing, which came out in 2006, 2000, no one really took it seriously until about 2008, 2009. Um, you know, that's been a, a godsend for people to transition. You know, when I went to Ironman, I came out of ITU and the next one, which was a sub two hour race, straight into an eight hour race. There was nothing in the middle. I did Wildflower, which was one half Ironman every year. I used to win it, but there was no 70.3 series. There was no... So you, you just basically learnt during Ironman, but a lot of these athletes are learning their craft through 70.3 racing. And I believe that is the best distance to race. It's a fantastic racing distance. And uh, yeah, what they're doing now is incredible, but it's, it's a mix of everything. It's a mix of the, of the talent that's there, the way this, the swim is way quicker than it used to be. And there's a lot more guys up there and where those guys used to just be good swimmers that did some TV time and disappeared. They're now... That, that swimmer's now Jan Fredino, who's an Olympic champion, who's probably the best runner in the, on the course and can ride a bike under four hours for the distance. Like, they are seriously talented athletes, and, and that pace is on is, is continually pushing. And, and there's a desperation now amongst a few of them to win this event, and, uh, and that, that always creates great racing. I want to know, mid-2000s, some crazy Australian larrikin comes to you and says, sub seven. Is it doable? Do you want to do it? What's your answer? <laughs> I would have said absolutely impossible. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, actually, Mark Allen just did a, a thing on his Mark Allen Monday thing about he broke it down. He saw, he, I didn't think he'd think it was possible. He actually thinks I go like 635 or 6. Yeah. I was like, that. wow. <laughs> but I would have thought, no, I know I, I for sure was not capable. I didn't have the swim to do that. Um, and you know, I, I could get down to a 45 minute swim, but my bike used to get beat around. I used to, I was still from that era where I didn't grow up as a triathlete. So I was always balancing that act. I get my swim up and I always have to sacrifice something. The modern day triathlete doesn't seem to have to sacrifice anything. They just get their swim up, their bike's already there. It, it, they're amazing athletes. I think it's because they've grown up as triathletes and, and, and they're much more aware of, you know, they're much more data focused than I was. I never, I never owned an SRM crank in my life. I wouldn't know what average power was. Mm-hmm. Uh, I used to have a Timex watch. Click. There wasn't a Garmin telling me what miles. <laughs> I used to calculate it on the course. Okay, I'm hoping those mile markers at Kona were right because sometimes you go, "Well, that was a five twenty mile. That was a quick one." And the next one used to be, "That was a six ten miles." Usually slowed up a lot, but it was just the mile markers were out. 
right? So it was <laughs> nowadays they've got garments, paces, beepers, everything that, that helps them on their journey. So I don't say that's the reason, but it's, it's definitely a, a different way of racing it now than it was 15 years ago. So, Maka, one more before we let you get on your merry way. I said I was going to hold you for 25 minutes. <laughs> <laughs> um, what do you, so what are you looking forward to? What's the most thing? What's got your eye for this year that you were looking forward to um, in 2022? What's, what's your big goal or what's something that's got your eye? I'm, uh, you know, I'm, I'm looking forward to, I'm hopeful. Everyone's talking about St. George, the shift to the, the shift to the Ironman, to, to St. George. Uh, yeah, sure. I'm looking forward to that race. I don't, there'll be a world champion, but it's not, to me, it's not really the world championships, but there's still a world title without, without question. But I'm, I'm hoping, and I think everyone's going to race in St. George because they don't know what Kona may look like because it, who knows, it could get cancelled. We've had so many cancellations with COVID. You take racing while you can, but mm. I'm hoping that we get a, we get a Kona back and we get a showdown. I want the women's showdown with Daniela V. Lucy versus Annie Haug versus, you know, Emma Pallant coming across this talk, Holly Lawrence wants to come across. It's like there's it's such a dynamic era of, of, of female races at the moment. I'm keen to see that. And if it is a transition, a changing of the guard, because a lot of people seem to have put a, a ribbon all over Daniela already. She's done, according to a lot of people. I beg to differ. And um, and the men's race is, I just, I, I, I'm such a fan of, I love Alistair Brownlee. A lot of people don't. I find him, I find his abrasiveness and his confidence inspiring. But I, I, I like a guy like that. Um, who's just self-obsessed on on his goal and he believes he can win it. He's just he said his body's not hasn't been cooperating and and everyone quits on him because his body's not cooperating. He's like, mate, I'm physically my you know my engine's strong, the chassis's just not working. Once I pick that chassis into gear, I'm going to win. Can I'm going to prove everyone wrong? So I I, I like that attitude. I'm, I love Jan Fredino. I think he's he's magnificent athlete. I think he's been great for the sport. I think I'm I'm always curious as an athlete ages what their approach to that that part of their career is do you do you go and fight do you do both Ironmans this year do you try and win the two world titles are you selective of the race you do do you, do you put all your eggs in one basket so I'm keen on that I'm hoping we see the yarn in, in in Kona that we saw what two years ago and I love the I love the I love the Norwegians I love Cameron Worth I love I love Lionel Sanders but the Norwegians are a breath of fresh air and there's sort of a, a, a lack of humility about them and that's probably the wrong word. They're they are very humble guys, but I love the fact that they live in their own bubble. They live off their own science and their own data, and they they don't they are not defined by what the records currently say. And as far as they're concerned, Ironman's soft. Like they like it's a soft sport. It's weak. It's a full of a bunch of of hyped up age groupers and a few good guys. That's pretty much their approach. The best talent does ITU. Ironman's where the, the rest of the people that can't make it in the ITU go, and I'll show you when I come there. And I remember thinking, all right, I heard a guy say that in 2002, got his ass kicked for years. <laughs> Good luck with that, but they're not getting their butt kicked. But I would, well, there's a sort of a little part in me that wants young Fredino just to go, bang, there you go, and, 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 and teach him all the lessons. So I'm very, very keen on that Kona race for men's and women's. Obviously, sub seven. I'm keen to see what happens because I've been so involved in the process and I just want to see racing back. I want our lives back. I want to, you know, there's been so many great people in this sport that have been victims of, you know, on the administration side, in the event space that have been victims of COVID that we may not see a lot of the races that we knew exist prior to COVID come back or those people that were involved in the sport. So I want to see what the landscape looks like and hopefully we can get back to some sort of normality and, 
and people can start to get engaged again in, in the lifestyle of triathlon. Because even though triathlon races have existed, I think what's been missing having traveled last year is that community and that group of people that was triathlon. You know, you're going to the races, there's dis social distancing and there's not many people there. And it just seems to have lost that that thing, that feeling that you had at every every single triathlon. I just hope that comes back again and people people buy back into life. Mm, couldn't agree more. Well, mate, um, thanks again for spending a bit of time with us. Um, that was, as per, very enlightening. It's great to see what you're doing with Super League. Obviously, the um, we're looking forward to the next set as well with the um, the sub seven and eight. Would will be pretty awesome to see what you guys can come up with. Um, you are changing it. There's no doubt. And I was talking to a race director here in Australia the other day who said to me that he was keying off what you guys were doing in Super League in order to you know create a better event package. Um, so the impact is now starting to be felt around the world i would have thought so uh, congratulations to you and um, mate look forward to seeing what comes up for 2022 with you and thanks for spending some time with us on the cool down too easy thanks for having me guys always a pleasure thanks chris thanks for listening to the cool down make sure to check out all in the world of triathlon with triathlete magazine